This is Ron Stockton. When I taught my class on religion and politics, I would always start with a discussion of Ludwig Feuerbach. There was a reason for this. Students come into a class that includes the word religion with a certain ways of thinking. Those ways are not necessarily wrong, but they can cause impediments in an academic class. Students are brought up to think within the circle, as I put it. They may have vigorous discussions in their religious community, but those discussions are among believers who are trying to better understand or better explain what they all agree is true. But what if we analyzed outside the circle? What if our thinking was critical? In this case, the word critical is not the same as the word criticism. It means analytical. This is where Feuerbach is so valuable. He analyzes outside the circle. He addresses not God, but what I call the God idea. Feuerbach notes that all religions say God is beyond human comprehension, and yet we all claim to have some understanding of God, or at least of the qualities of God. God is kind, merciful, forgiving, angry, jealous. How do we know those traits of God? Feuerbach offers several reasons why people think they know what they all agree is unknowable. But he makes a shocking conclusion. It is not shocking to people who study religion from an academic perspective, but it is shocking from a perspective of believers. Feuerbach says all of our assumptions about God and God's qualities are really reflections on ourself. Ouch! Let's think for a minute about someone who wants to be more like God, more merciful, kind, forgiving, etc. Wanting to be those things is admirable, but to be honest, wanting to be more godlike is bizarre, and it reveals something about us as humans. Suppose someone looked at the sky and saw a bird soaring. The person is awestruck. I want to be able to soar. I know if I practice and have faith, I can someday soar. Okay, let's be realistic. You can spend the rest of your life flapping your arms and having faith that ultimately you will soar and you will never get off the ground. Do you know why? Because you're a human, not a bird. Or suppose you really admire fish for being able to breathe underwater. You want to be able to breathe underwater. You know that if you practice and have faith, someday you will be able to breathe underwater. I once had a dream that I was a fish and could breathe underwater. But do you know what? It was a dream. If I ever tried it, I would drown. Do you know why? Because I'm a human, not a fish. Do you know why we never try to flap our wings or breathe underwater? Because we recognize that birds and fish are fundamentally different from us. And yet we want to have the qualities of God. Is God not fundamentally different from us? Feuerbach says we all do this because our understanding of God are really understandings of ourselves. This talk makes some students generate resistance and counter-arguments. But what about? Remember the rules of good studenting. Until you can summarize an argument to the satisfaction of the person who made that argument and, under and answer criticisms of it, you do not understand the argument well enough to know if you agree or disagree. I hope you enjoy this talk. And I hope that it makes you think. I'm sorry I can't attach the readings. That would help. And in discussing this, I had a glitch. I said Moses Maimonides was from the 1700s. In fact, he lived 800 years ago in Islamic Spain. I once visited his grave in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. When I said the 1700s, I was thinking of another Moses, Moses Mendelssohn, who was a German. They are very different. 
But in this lecture, some things happen. Okay, off we go to the lecture. Welcome to the class. Well, this is the uh, start of, of uh, the unit on um, background, basically, to how uh, people think about religion. We're focusing on the Germans. They're just really good. Um, they're the ideal people to uh, talk about this, too, because their country had been torn apart by the religious wars that killed maybe a quarter of all Germans, perhaps more. Those are the 30 years wars. They lasted forever. Um, and they have this ongoing struggle between Jews and Christians and anti-Semitism, whatever you want to call it. And uh, the Germans are trying really hard to try to understand this. They're not interested in theology. We're not interested in, we're not interested in abstract concepts of God. We're only interested in religion as it enters the public arena. What happens in public? What happens in your private thinking? That's a different issue. Uh, some theologian writes a book on the nature of God, and uh, okay, that's not of interest to us in this class. And it wasn't of interest to them. They wanted to know what happens when this gets into the public arena. And um, so you've got Feuerbach that we're talking about today. You've got Marx and his co-author Engels, and they're very different. Uh, you've got Abram Leon. We'll talk about him later. And then you've got uh, uh, Weber, who kind of critiques. He's got an alternative interpretation. These are the people who really raise a lot of issues. I've got to tell you this, for some people, this is the hardest unit, um, for good reason. The ideas are really complex. They come from a different country, a different century, a different set of problems, an alternative paradigm that is an alternative way of thinking, and they use a vocabulary that we just don't use anymore. Uh, so uh, it, it's all right, stick with it, you're going you're gonna to make it. Um, there's also resistance. They're raising, each of you will feel a little bit of resistance, especially if you're a very religious person, um, because they're raising, uh, they're, they're critiquing from outside the circle. As I mentioned to you, there are people who say, well, in our religion, we have really vigorous debates about these issues. And yeah, but they're all debates among believers. These people are saying, okay, whether we're believers or not, we're critiquing from the outside. We're using social science techniques and tools and analytical uh, skills to analyze religion as, as, a, as a process, as an object. So you're kind of resistant to that. Okay, just be aware of it and it'll be fine. Don't worry. Uh, your instinct is to make it compatible. Yes, well, that's what we believe. No, it's not. No, it's not. These people are raising different, different total issues. Remember that your goal as a student is to study ideas until you can explain them to others. If you have a doubt, say to yourself, what am I not understanding? And if we were in a live class and somebody raised a point, I would say, okay, what would Feuerbach say about that? And if you can't answer that, then you don't understand. Go back and think again. Go to the rules of good studenting. You're going to be, you're going to be, uh, uh, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Now, I want you to stop for a minute. I hit the pause and write down three traits of your God. Okay, hit the pause, write down the traits, come back. Okay, welcome back. Um, we're going to come back to that list that you made in a little while. Um, let me tell you about Feuerbach. He was born in 1804. He wrote this book, The Essence of Christianity, in 1841. It's about 350 pages. I only had you read some excerpts from it. 
but uh, you get you get a sense of what he's doing. He was born in Bavaria. He he was a Pietist. That is, they weren't they weren't traditional Catholics or Lutherans or or um, Calvinist uh, evangelicals. Uh, the evangelical is a, it doesn't mean in Germany what it means in this country. It means basically people of the Calvinist tradition. We'll talk about that later when we get to Weber. Um, that was about him. Uh, he, he was interested in theology, and he enrolled at Heidelberg University, which was one of the best universities, and was doing great until he wrote an essay denying the immortality of the soul. And since that was the official position of Christianity, he got kicked out. And that ended his career as a theologian. So he uh, began to think seriously on his own. Um, by the way, I got a I got an ancestor named Feuerbach. I was so excited um, about a couple of years ago. I doing doing family research. I discovered that that around eighteen hundred, a certain Miss Feuerbach had immigrated to this country, and she had married someone, and who was also my ancestors. So those two are my great, 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 whatever. Um, this ended badly after 30 years of marriage. My grandfather beat my grandmother to death. What a, what a jerk, I tell you. He beat her to death and killed her by taking a broom and thrusting it down her throat. And so he was charged with murder. Ah, this guy, I don't know. He was charged with murder, and uh, they held a trial, and he was going to be hanged. So, uh, so on the day of the hanging, uh, because he was a well-known member of society, they decided to give him an honorable death. I'm not sure why this is so honorable, but the honorable death was that he would be given a stick, and when he threw the stick down, they would pull the rope, and, and he would be hanged. So he has to participate in his own, uh, in his own demise. Well... With everybody standing around, he took the stick and he threw it at them and swore at them. And so they just hanged him. I can only hope that he had a mental illness and this wasn't actually his nature. Fortunately, they had a daughter before uh, before uh, he killed her and she became my ancestor. So I checked to find out if maybe I was related to the great Ludwig and and I was not, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Anyway... Um, Feuerbach gave us three phrases that we use today. Uh, one is kind of in the 60s. You would have to be there, I guess. Um, it was a bumper sticker, you are what you eat. I never quite understood exactly what that was all about. But uh, one, of my, a friend, my, one of my female friends said, if you are what you eat, then I'm cheap, fast, and easy. I guess, <laughs> anyway, that was her point. Um, another phrase he gave us was that... Uh, uh, Religion is an opiate of the masses. And uh, opium at that time was a painkiller. And he said, religion is a painkiller for people who are oppressed. Marx, you, Marx borrowed that phrase from him, you know, religion is an opiate of the masses. What Feuerbach said was religion is as bad as opium. That is, it, it dulls you and so uh, it, it distracts you from your, from your pain. And that's not good politically. And then finally, he, he gave us a phrase, uh, 
man created God in his own image. And um, we Americans know this from the, the Scopes trial. We'll talk about that later. But you remember Tennessee had banned the teaching of evolution. And this uh, young teacher named Scopes went in to his principal. They wanted to test this in the courts. So he went in to his principal and said, oh, by the way, today I'm going to teach evolution. So he did, and they arrested him and fined him for $5. And then there was an appeal and a great trial. It's a really amazing story. But... Uh, he had actually borrowed that. Feuerbach had borrowed that from Voltaire, who said, uh, if God created us in his own image, we have more than reciprocated. Uh, what Scope said was, uh, God created a man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. So, I don't know. Um, there's a woman named Ann, Annie Lamont. Some of you may know her, mostly not, probably. Uh, she's kind of a hero to feminists, and uh, I like her, actually. I've read one of her books, and uh, she says, you can safely assume you have created a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Oh, my, that is so terrible. I see that on Facebook all the time. Um, this was translated by George Eliot, translated into English by George Eliot. Some of you may know George Eliot. Uh, George Eliot was actually a woman. Uh, her name was Marion Evans, and she wrote uh, Silas Marner and things like that, um, Mill on the Floss. Um, Marion uh, Evans wanted to be a writer, and she figured that women in the, early, in the early 1800s in England, they didn't get much respect. So she uh, decided to name herself George and start dressing like a man. And, I mean, in those days, when she wore slacks, you know, that was oh, scandalous. I mean, people didn't know what the heck this was, you know. And, uh, um, I mean, oh, wait a minute. I'm just looking around the room. I'm looking around the room here. I mean, some of you women have on slacks. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, um, she started doing that, and that, to, that identified her as a somewhat strange person. But she's really an impressive, impressive person. Um, Let's think about something for a minute, about all of these things, when uh, um, Feuerbach is talking about Protestantism. But the fact is, he's talking about all religion. I'm not having you read this just to understand Protestantism. I'm having you read this to understand a critique of religion. And when Marx criticizes, when Marx critiques Jews and Jewish uh, politics and Jewish thinking, he's not just talking about Jews. He's talking about people in general, the religion in general. And when Weber talks about Calvinism, he's not just talking about Calvinism. So as far as we're concerned, these are cases from which we can generalize to the wider political process. Um, now, I have to mention Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. Um, I visited his grave in Berlin. I, f I felt uh, very happy about that. Hegel lived from 1770 to 1831, so he died about 10 years before Feuerbach wrote this. Hegel was the dominant German intellectual. I mean, he was so far above everybody else that everybody just bowed down to Hegel. His, his ideas were so, uh, so uh, powerful that uh, the whole idea of the dialectic, which we'll talk about later, and, uh, but what, what, what is really interesting to us at this point is that Hegel thought in a conceptual realm. He was interested in humanity, but not in humans. 
he, he sort of abstracted and reified people. So uh, he would make a statement about humanity, and you would say, oh, uh, Friedrich, that is such a wonderful uh, idea. Tell me where this works. Ah, nein Dummkopf. We're talking about humanity, not humans. But is there an example? Nein Dummkopf, don't you know? We're talking about humanity. He talked about abstractions. He really wasn't interested in people. This is very interesting. Now, whenever we, uh, he was interested in what's called the Geist, the human spirit. Um, so he saw religion within that context. In these readings that you're going to be reading, and Marx in particular uses this term, they talk about the German philosophy. Okay, kind of flag this, put a little X by this. German philosophy, that means Hegel. That's the code word for Hegel. So whenever someone talks about how we confronted the German philosophy, that means you're confronting Hegel. Um, I tried reading Hegel. I've got to tell you, I've had trouble with Hegel. Hegel and I have a, a, an, an, an it's a complicated relationship, according to Facebook. Um, and, and I was worried. I thought, okay, I've tried to read Hegel, but maybe I need to understand Hegel a little better. So I went to my colleague, Professor Rosano, who knows this stuff really inside and out, and I said, okay, is there a, a kind of an essay that will explain to me what Hegel uh, ideas are? He said, yes, there is. So he gave me this book, and it was a collection of essays. Someone had compiled a collection of essays that got all the greatest experts on particular philosophers and had each of them write a, a discussion of that philosopher's approach to the world. And there was one on Hegel, so I copied it and, and took, it, took it home and read it and critiqued it. And uh, so now I understand Hegel better. But let me read to you what, the, what this person said, who is one of the greatest experts on Hegel. Um, but the height of audacity in serving up pure nonsense in stringing together senseless and extravagant mazes of words such as had previously been known only in madhouses was finally reached in Hegel and became the instrument of the most barefaced general mystification mystification means you make things more confusing than ever that has ever taken place with a result which will appear fabulous to posterity and will remain a monument to German stupidity. Oh my gosh, and this guy is an expert in Hegel. So I guess my earlier impressions as, as, a, as, a young, as an undergraduate and graduate and young professor as I tried to read Hegel, that he just was incomprehensible. I guess I'm not the only person who concluded that. But then came Feuerbach, and here is what Feuerbach focused on people. Amazing. He wasn't interested in the abstract. He was interested in people. Here's what Engels had to say. Now, Engels, you remember, was uh, Friedrich Engels was uh, Marx's co-author and good friend and and uh, intellectual companion and all those things. They co-authored the uh, Communist Manifesto, although Marx really wrote it. But they were a committee of two, and so so uh, Engels got his name on it. Then came Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity. One must himself have his experienced the liberating effect of this book to get an idea of it. Enthusiasm was general, and we all became at once Feuerbachians. When people read this, he critiqued, he discussed and analyzed religion from outside the circle. Circle is within. He stepped aside and said, okay, I'm going to use the tools of analytical social science and philosophy and history to study this as 
religion as a phenomenon. And people were stunned. They couldn't believe how uh, analytical he was. Marx said, to understand religion, you must go through the Feuerbach. Now, he's playing, Marx loved to play with words. Uh, Feuer, uh, Feuerbach has a meaning, actually, that name does. Feuer means fire, and Bach is a stream. It's like a firebreak or something like that. So there's a fire raging, and to get to religion, to, to understand religion, you've got to go through, through the fire, basically. And uh, so Marx was also a great fan. Um, a basic point to start with here is that God is beyond human comprehension, and this has been a common teaching in the past. Um, Aquinas, uh, 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 St. Thomas Aquinas, the second greatest theologian in Catholic history, uh, St. Augustine would be the first, I guess, but uh, said we think of God only by analogy. So God is beyond human comprehension, so we call him a father. Okay, we talk about the arm of God. Okay. These are, these are analogies. They're not, they're not, they don't have anything to do with God, really. They have to do with our effort to understand what we're talking about. Maimonides, the great Jewish, uh, Moses Maimonides, the great Jewish intellectual of the 1700s, um, said that uh, it is impossible to know God through human traits. People who talk about human traits, they're, they're just fumbling around with their own ideas. They're not, this has nothing to do with God. And then Ibn Rushd, known, known in the West as ever, always the great Muslim philosopher, said God has no human traits, not even words. Now we'll talk about this later when we get to Islam, because if God has no words, then what is the Quran? And what does it mean in the Quran when it talks about the arm of God? What does that mean? if God has no human traits. These are obviously not about God. They're metaphors, and they're not divine. So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing not with God. Feuerbach is not talking about God. He's, just, he's, he's sort of, I think he's still, you know, he kind of moved away from religion after he got kicked out of Heidelberg. But I think he still is thinking religiously. It's still there. You can't get away from it. And uh, so... He's talking about what we might call the God idea. That is, human beings have an idea of God. This is a human, this is our own human creation, you know. Like, what do we mean? What do we understand by God? This has nothing to do with God. You understand that human understandings, therefore, have nothing to do with God. They have to do with human beings. And we understand them by looking at human beings, not thinking about the divine. Okay, this is a jump for you. For some of you who are religious, this is a jump for you. You've got to just struggle for this. I'm not asking you to accept anything. What you have to do, though, is understand it so well that you can explain it to someone else. And if someone critiques it, you can say, well, let me explain to you what Feuerbach would say about that comment you just made. When you can do that, you can then say, okay, I still don't agree. Okay, that's fine. You can say, I don't agree at the end of the semester, but that's fine. You don't, you're not arguing with him or trying to understand him. Um, so how did this idea of, where did the God idea come from historically? Uh, Feuerbach talks about those, uh, those things. Uh, when is divine revelation? This is, this is what your religious leaders would say. Um, humans were just walking along one day and God said, here, and you say, what is that? It's a book, read it and get ready for the final exam. 
okay, so God handed down a book. We've got it. Therefore, that's authentic. Therefore, we know about God. That's one explanation of where the God idea comes from. It's divine revelation. Secondly, some people say religion, religious thinking comes from the folk myths of people, the folk myths of people. Now, my favorite example of this is, uh, is, is uh, eating pork. Jews and uh, Muslims are not allowed to eat pork. Well, why is that? Pork chops, that's nice, you know, ham sandwich. Okay, that's good. What's the problem here? Well, if you ask them, they will say, well, because it has trigonosis. You know, I've got a, I got a Jewish friend who says, okay, it's because of trigonosis. They, you can get diseases, and therefore they banned it for health reasons. Okay, here's, my, here's, here's what I think happened. Um, the Hebrews are wandering around in the Sinai Desert for 40 years, and somewhere, sometime the uh, Hebrew CDC comes to Moses with a report and says, you know, we've discovered these microscopic creatures in the muscles of pigs. And if someone eats one of those infected pigs, they're going to get sick and maybe die. So we have to have an announcement telling them that they shouldn't uh, eat pork for health reasons. And Moses says, okay, look, we're dealing with uh, really superstitious people. These are not very sophisticated people. They don't believe in science. So don't, don't have the issue come from the CDC, the Hebrew CDC, Center for Disease Control. Have it come from the high priest. The high priest will just said, God said, don't eat that stuff. Okay, that is an explanation of a teaching as growing out of the history of people. It doesn't have anything to do with God. It's just that God is used to sanctify the idea of a certain kind of teaching. Um, and then finally, a, th a third explanation, which is sometimes there, is that religion is a calculated effort of elites to control and manipulate people. Well, that's often attributed to Marx. No, Marx never said that. Uh, Rousseau said that. Rousseau said, if I were a leader, I would create a religion and require everybody to adhere to it. And of course, one of the teachings of the religion would be, you should all pray for your leaders and respect them because they're from God. That would be one of the teachings of religion. Okay, that's really going to help the religious, help the political leaders stay in power, isn't it? <sighs> These are ideas that Feuerbach says are traditional explanations of the God idea. Where did, this idea, where did these ideas come from? Now, Feuerbach says, okay, let's step back. Feuerbach says, talking about humanity, he says, we humans have three traits which are distinctive to humans. The beasts, that is animals, don't have them. First is that we have consciousness. We're aware of ourselves. We're aware that we exist. All of you know that you're going to die someday, right? Well, you know what? You're aware that you exist. You're aware that you are now alive. And you are aware that there was a time when you weren't alive. And you are aware that there's a time when you will not be alive. And very often when somebody is, uh, you know, a plane crashes or something, someone will say, you know, I was supposed to be on that plane. Oh, thank God I wasn't on it, you know. They're aware that they could have died. There's a man named Eric Fromm. 
you won't know him, but he was a very prominent psychologist and a popular writer. He's really good. Um, he said that if we were capable of it at birth, we would scream in anticipation of our coming death. Little kids very early on figure out that their goldfish died or their cat died or whatever it is or a family member died. Then they, they know there's death, but they just don't understand it. What is it? My cat, I had a cat named Gato. He was wonderful. Gato is a great name for a cat since it means cat. And some of you know the origin of that uh, name. It's from that children's story, a song. I hope some of you uh, learned that. Senor Don Gato was a cat on a high red roof. Don Gato sat. Anyway, when we got a cat, our kids loved that song, so we uh, named our cat Gato. He lived to be 22 years old. That cat could levitate. I swear it was the most amazing cat. He would he would just be standing there on the sidewalk, and uh, and there on the fence there would be a bird, and he would just go levitate up just the way a helicopter does, and then zoom. He would go over and have that bird. I don't know how he ever did that. It was it was amazing. He was a, if there had been a, a cat levitation Olympics, he would have won every year. But you know, by the time he got to be twenty two, he died. He could barely move. You know, he had arthritis and. He couldn't jump up on Whenever I would sit on the sofa to read, he, he couldn't jump up. I would have to pick him up and put him on my lap, which is what he loved. And, uh, and anytime I would pick him up, he would go, Meow, because it hurt. And uh, he was not aware that he was going to die. I could see that he was on the verge of death, but he was not aware of that. He was not aware that he existed, and he was not aware that uh, he was soon not to exist. Every human knows that. Every human who can't walk across the room because they're so feeble, they know that there's, this is countdown time. Animals don't know that. So there's a writer named Karen Armstrong. She writes about religion. She's a former nun. She's really good. I like her. Here's what she says. Dogs, as far as we know, do not agonize about the canine condition, worry about the plight of dogs in other parts of the world, or try to see their lives from a different perspective. Now, this leads us to the, word, to the concept of species existence. As a species, we're aware that there is this thing called humanity. When we read about a, a, a tragic dam breaking somewhere in, in India or somewhere or China and, and uh, 10,000 people die, we feel really distressed. You say, come on, it's China. Who cares? They got a billion people. They can spare. No, that's not how we react. We say, oh my gosh, look at all those people killed. We have a sense of species consciousness or species existence. So, Keep that term in mind. When we get to Marx, you're going to see these terms, consciousness and species existence. So Karen Armstrong says, uh, you know, dogs don't worry about the status of dogs. They're dogs wandering the streets without any owner. Nobody feeds them. Dogs never, your dog doesn't worry about that, about other dogs. I'll tell you, I've been on, I've been, I lived in Africa for three years and I've seen this. I've seen a, uh, I've seen a, uh, a cheetah or a lion kill a gazelle. And, uh, you know, if there's a herd of gazelle there and uh, 
the lion chases down a gazelle. You know, they'll run. The gazelles know that they can be killed, so they have an instinct to run and escape. But uh, once, once the lion catches a gazelle, all the others will just stand there. It's amazing. They just stand there. They're totally in there. I mean, okay, the lion's got his lunch now. None of us are at risk. Now, they kind of look at each other and say, you know, we told Charlie not to get away from the, from the herd. He it doesn't listen. It's his own fault, you know. And then they just, oh, there's some grass over here. And uh, so, uh, so species existence, we, we have that trait. And then a third trait that we have is projection. We're able to, uh, we're able to go out of our own existence and look at the existence of someone else. Now, we have a... Let me give you a, a little term here. We have a mundane and particularistic existence. Let me tell you those words again. Mundane means, uh, uh, you know, we have a mundane existence. You wake up in the morning, you go down to the bathroom, you brush your teeth, you take a shower, whatever it is. That's pretty mundane. It's really boring. And then particularistic, that means uh, we're trapped in our own bodies. Now, you can't see me, but I'm white. I'm a male. I'm an American. I have certain talents that other people don't have. I'm flawed in a way that humans can be flawed. I have a limited understanding of people not like me. You know what? Um, uh, I've lived with women all my life. My mother was a woman. My sister is a woman. My wife is a woman. My granddaughters are, are, are females. I've known women. I like women, I have female students, but you know what? I really haven't the slightest idea what it means to be a woman. I don't, I don't know what that means. When an evening class is over and I go to my car, I just think, okay, I'm going to my car. But maybe a woman is a little bit nervous going to her car at, at 9.30 at night. That, that may be something that someone else feels that I don't feel. I'm particularistic. Um, Feuerbach says that getting beyond your particularism and thinking in terms of wider consciousness, that's what our humanity is. Okay, let's go to another point. Feuerbach gives us logical proofs that religious concepts are human. Now, he doesn't make a list the way I am. This is a lecture, but you've got to read Feuerbach a couple times, but you'll see he makes all these points. He says, for one thing, let's look at previous gods. We get all defensive about our own gods. Oh, come on. We love our gods, right? But let's look at someone else's gods, previously back in history. Primitive people are struggling to survive. A little band of people struggling to, going from place to place, they're struggling to survive. Survival has to do with rain, fertility, fear. So they worship the rain god, please let it rain. Please let our women have babies and please let our animals have, have, uh, have babies. We look at those earlier gods and we see them as idolatrous. That is, idolatry means we're projecting ourselves into God. Or paganism, worshiping nature. So, okay, you've got two words here. Idolatry is creating, we create things ourselves and objects very often, or paganism, we find God in nature. So the Greek gods, for example, there's uh, Zeus and Hera. Oh, I tell you, those two were such an embarrassment. Um, 
uh, Zeus would get up in the morning and say, well, Hera, I'll see you later. And she says, where are you going? Well, I'm out. And he says, no, you're not. She says, no, you're not. You're going out to chase those nymphs, aren't you? You're going to be, you're going to be out having sex with some beautiful nymph, aren't you? No, no, Hera, I would never do that. Yes, you would. And then she finds out. She throws, uh, she throws the dishes at him. She shots at him. It's a big scandal. All the neighbors come. Come on. This is not the gods. These are the Greeks talking about themselves. We can see that. But they've got statues of those people. And then uh, simple people very often worship nature. These, these people are called pagans. They worship nature. And I like pagans, actually. Pagans have never gone to war over, uh, with somebody else over God. Each, each pagan religion is linked to its own, uh, its, own, its own territory, basically. And so they worship trees or fertility. Um, in uh, in uh, Kenya, there was a mogumu tree. And uh, I tell you, those trees are amazing. You look at those trees, they just kind of... Uh, I saw one of those trees once that looked like uh, you can't... Uh, uh, you look inside, you can't see anything in there. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, if I were, uh, you know, a, a villager, I might think God lived in that tree. Or they might think that God lives on top of Mount Kenya. I lived at the base of Mount Kenya for, for uh, 15 months. And I tell you, if I were God, I would live on Mount Kenya. Um, and so people think that God lives on Mount Kenya, okay? So uh, a third explanation of where gods come from is that we worship rulers. Our rulers are divine. They're chosen by God. Or maybe they are divine. The Egyptians and the Romans, those, those emperors were, those pharaohs and emperors, they were, they were gods. They really were gods. So here's what Feuerbach says. Hence, the historical progress of religion consists in this. That which, during an earlier stage of religion, was regarded as something objective, that is true, is now recognized as something subjective, that is human thinking. So that that which was formerly, formerly viewed and worshipped as God is now recognized as something human. The later stage of religion recognizes the earlier stage as a stage of idolatry, a stage at which man prayed to his own nature. So when we look back in history, we can see that those are not really gods. They're human creations. And uh, Feuerbach also says that we give, uh, we give gods uh, human traits. Now, um, I, ask you to, uh, I ask you to write at the beginning the traits of God. So, uh, this is called anthropomorphism. Okay, do you know that word? I love that word. Anthro, meaning humans, po-morph, M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. Anthropomorphism. That means human traits. So we give God human traits. So I ask you to uh, compile, uh, to give me a list. Okay, now I wrote those down as you told me what they were. Um, here's what you told me. Uh, God is just, okay. God is loving, okay. Forgiving, that's nice. Merciful, yes. Benevolent, yes. Understanding, oh, I like this God. Gracious, thank you. And vengeful, oh, wow, don't cross this God. And jealous, ooh, don't get involved with someone else. Someone did a uh, research study 
Um, they did, it, it took a couple stages. One, they took a group of people like you and asked you to write out all the traits of God as you understood it. Then they compiled a list of those traits and found a, a scientific sample of people and asked them to check which of those traits they thought God had. And so, uh, and then they did a factor analysis. Now, a factor analysis is a really interesting uh, methodology. You put all the you put all the data points, that is the responses that people gave to this questionnaire, and you ask the computer to find patterns, extract patterns. And so they found that that Americans have six different understandings of God. Okay, this is really interesting. Let me read to you what those six things are. And they come out of the response patterns. That is, if a certain, certain types of traits suggest a certain kind of God. So we have six different gods. Let me, six different understandings. The God idea has six different manifestations. Here they go. One thing, uh, God is a vindictive God. And these people said God is wrathful, avenging, damning. Whoa, that's a scary God. And then secondly, there are people who thought of God as a stern father. Now, these terms, the scholars came up with these, these descriptive terms. But these are people who said God is unyielding, punishing, and restricting. And they said, well, that's like a stern father, okay? Then the third is like a supreme ruler. And these are people who said God is majestic, kingly, sovereign. And then... The fourth trait is God is, is distant, and these are people who said God is impersonal and inaccessible. And then the, uh, the fifth trait is the kindly father. God is merciful, forgiving, and patient. And then uh, there's a sixth trait. Wait, what, what did you say? I forgot to mention when I made the list. I forgot to mention. Wait, what did I forget to mention? Oh, yeah. God is all-powerful. Oh, yeah, okay, thank you. And wait, what's that other one? What did you think? Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention. God is all-knowing. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, you know, in, uh, in, our, in our language, we use Greek words to describe theology. We use Latin words to describe uh, uh, polit uh, constitutional and law issues because the role of the Catholic Church in creating legal systems, we'll talk about this later in the semester, but we use Greek terms. So, all powerful, we say omnipotent. Omni, omni means all, and potent means powerful, so all powerful. And then all knowing, that's omniscient. Omnipotent and omniscient. Okay, God is all knowing and all powerful. Okay, stop, let's stop and think for a minute. This is one of the traits as, as well. This is the sixth trait that human beings have, Americans have, about understanding of God. Think about these two. They call this allness. Um, these are logically inconsistent, aren't they? They're, they're not consistent with each other. Um, um, omnipotent means that God can change the future, right? Omniscient, or all-knowing, means God knows the future, right? Those are inconsistent. If you know the future and then you change the future, obviously you didn't know the future. Okay, now this is not my argument. This is a, this is a famous argument of, of people who, uh, who have written on these subjects. But 
it just comes to a certain point. We human beings are coming up with certain words to describe that, which we all agree, if you're a believer, we all agree is beyond human comprehension, and yet we're trying to use human words to describe that, which is, is beyond human words. So, let me ask you to try something. Think about the other two religions. We're all from, I think we're all from the Abrahamic tradition, aren't we? We're either Muslims or Christians or Jews, right? Um, I want you to think about your religion compared with the other two religions. Now, your religion is obviously true and perfect and divine, right? True and perfect and divine. Ah. Isn't it great to have such a religion? Um, and uh, But think about those other two. I mean, really, come on. Isn't it obvious those other two are seriously flawed and compromised by human thinking? Of course it is. Um, isn't it obvious that they're linked to certain systems and within our own country? I mean, come on, Islam, religion, Islam... Christianity, Judaism, those are linked to certain political positions and political groups within our own country. Isn't that true? Of course it is. Um, and, uh, and they're linked to certain positions within the international power system, right? And come on, they represent, they represent armies, don't they? They're the ideological, they're the ideological uh, manifestations of military and economic power in the international arena. Okay, now wait, wait. I'm not talking about your religion, which is divine and pure and perfect in every way. But I'm talking about the other two. Now, don't, don't point. Don't raise your hand. You have to be polite in this class. But really, those other two are seriously flawed, aren't they? I think so. So here's a concept that Feuerbach introduces. I call it the gap. Um... All of us are aware that there's a gap between what we as humans, we as individuals, could be and what we are. You know that if you studied harder, you would get better grades. You know that. And you must be kind of disappointed. I mean, I've had students send me apologies. I'm so sorry. I got a C in your class. I just didn't work. I mean, I appreciate that when students do that because that means they really, they really respect the educational process and they know that I was hoping that they would do better, but they didn't. But that's a gap between what we know we could be and what we are. And likewise, we look at our society. I mean, come on, America is a fantastic country. We have such resources. Why do we have poverty in this country? Really? Why do we have police killing people? killing black people. Why do we have that? Come on, aren't we a bit disappointed in this? I mean, we know our country could be better. It's a great country. It could be better. That's the gap. That's the gap. Um, let's look at some specific things that Feuerbach said. And uh, let me read you some quotes of his, maybe. Some points that he made. Um, he believes that... Uh, we start as, we start, sort of, religion plays an interesting role. When, when we're a tribal people, when we're, when we're herds, when we're bands of people wandering around, 
in the des in, in the wilderness trying to survive. A band of thirty people or so were all family member wandering around. Religion is really kind of functional at that point because it it helps us keep cohesion and a sense of values and uh, those sorts of things. So that's good. But at a certain point, religion becomes counterproductive. It doesn't enhance humanity; it inhibits humanity. So at a certain point, there is a break from people get alienated and they say, "Okay, I don't believe this anymore. I'm out of here." I suspect there are some of you in this class who are just said, "Okay, I'm out of here. I don't. I grew up religious. Religious. I don't like it anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I've seen too much bad stuff." Okay, that's fine. So you're not a non-believer. You're maybe an atheist. I don't know. Here's what Feuerbach says: You've got to move beyond atheism. You know, it's interesting. Karl Marx refused to call himself an atheist. People say, you're an atheist, aren't you, Karl? He refused to talk about that. He says, look, that's just a debate. That's religious people and non-religious people, and they're both basically arguing over the same thing, aren't they? It's like someone who breaks up, a, a young woman who breaks up with her boyfriend and spends all her time talking about it, how awful he is and how she doesn't want to have anything. And finally, her girlfriend say, you know, you're still kind of an attracted to this guy, aren't you? I mean, you, you wouldn't be talking about him all the time. Okay, Marx refused to say he's an atheist. He says, I don't want to get into that argument. That's a waste of time. What Feuerbach says is that we have to move beyond atheism to humanism. We have to focus on real human beings. That's kind of an interesting perspective. Feuerbach says, God is man's objectified nature. Okay, here's a really interesting point. We're aware that we as individuals could be better. So here's what Feuerbach says. We have a psychological need, okay, back to projection, to the concept of projection. We project, you know, uh, you know from psychology 101 what projection is. That means something inside of us, we, we attribute it to other people. Like you really, you really hate uh, me, don't you? Well, you say that because you hate that person, and but you can't admit that, and so you attribute that person to the views that you have inside of yourself. So, Feuerbach says, we have a, we have a, we know we know the trace, we know we know the potential we have within ourselves. We know we could be better. So, what is what do we do? He says we create this idealized person that has all the good traits that human beings could have and should have, and we call it God, and then we worship it. And basically, it's our own, it's our own aspirations, our own hopes, our own dreams. Hmm. The qualities which men attribute to God constitute truth and the highest existence for themselves. Let me read that again. <clears throat> the qualities which men attribute to God, constitute truth and the highest existence for themselves. If we were perfect, we would be what God is. Okay, we're, what is God? An objective thing? No, it's a subjective thing. It comes out of us. We take all of these traits of what we know we're capable of. I could tell you God would never get a B in one of my classes. God would always work hard and get, and get an A. And there is a gap, a gap between God and man. Okay, brace yourselves. For God to be great, man must be nothing. The greater God is, 
the less man is. And in those societies in which God is elevated to a very high level, those tend to be authoritarian societies. Oh, that's a disturbing thought. So we project our nature onto an external thing. and call it God, and then we worship it. So let's read some excerpts from Feuerbach. You know what you're going to do? This is a lecture. When I ask you to write on this, you're not going to just summarize this lecture. Because I'm, I'm bringing in things that are, not in, that are not Feuerbach's. I mean, I'm giving you illustrations, whatever. So I want you to go back and reread Feuerbach. I know you're going to do that. You've read it already. You need to read it again in light of what I've told you, and look for those passages that you didn't really understand the first time and see if maybe they make a little more sense to you. Let me read some passages from page 9. Now, every being is sufficient to itself. Each being is in itself and for itself something perfect. Okay, here are a couple nice German words. In itself and for itself. This is ansick and fursick. Ansick in itself, and first sick, for itself. And those have different meanings. Uh, each being is in itself and for itself something perfect and has its God, its highest being inside of itself. So all of those traits we attribute to God, apart from that mystical stuff like all-powerful, all but those traits we attribute to God, kind, caring, generous, forgiving, those are just, we could be all of that. If we, if we would just get our act together. The limitations of a being are cognizable, understandable, only by another being which exists independently of the first on a higher level. Okay, by attributing this to a God, we see all of our own potential. All of those traits that God has, we could be that. So God is of human origin. Oh. You believe in love as a divine attribute. This is page 14. You believe in love as a divine attribute because you yourself love. You believe that God is a wise, benevolent being because you know nothing better in yourself than benevolence, than benevolence and wisdom. And you believe God exists because you yourself exist. Hmm. Page 15. God is the essence of man viewed as absolute truth. Now, this is some of this... German uh, stuff, you know, abstraction, uh, absolute truth, whatever. Um, that was a term. Uh, that was a term that uh, Hegel used, the absolute. So th th this is kind of hanging on to a little bit of Hegel. God is the essence of man, viewed as absolute truth. In and through God, man aims at his true self. That's also page. In and that's also fifteen. In and through God, man man aims at his true self. So when we try to become more godlike we're to, we're we're really trying to become more human like we're trying to become human beings actually the properties therefore which men attribute to their god constitute for them the truth and consequently the highest possible existence so this is the way we should live our lives by being like god 
but where did these ideas, this is a God idea, where did it come from? Well, it's really ourselves. We're taking our own potential and calling it God, and then saying, you know, we should be more God-like. Okay, maybe we should. Page 16. He alone is truly an atheist to whom the predicates of divinity, for example, love, wisdom, and justice, mean nothing. So what is, a, what is an atheist? Well, you have to ask yourself then, what is a theist? And, and, and what, is, what, what is God? God is those best qualities within ourselves. And what are those? Uh, love, wisdom, justice, those are, uh, those are really good human qualities. And what is an atheist? Well, it's someone who, is not, who doesn't have love, doesn't have wisdom, doesn't have justice. This is a really different definition, isn't it? Okay, on page 18. Religion is the alienation of man from himself. For man sets up God as an antithesis to himself. Okay, wait a minute. We've projected our traits and then said this is a not us. Well, of course it's an us. It came from out of us. Religion becomes a form of alienation in which we are separated from ourselves. Religion is the alienation of man from himself, for man sets up God as an antithesis of himself. Then on page 25, <clears throat> love makes man divine, and it makes God human. Oh, this is getting complex now. Humans have a spark of divinity in them. Okay, now that's not the way you were. Now stop, stop. You're saying, well, that's, not what that's what we're taught in our religion. No, it's not. This is different. Stop saying that. Stop trying to make this compatible with your Sunday school class. It's not. Love makes man divine, and it makes God human. Okay, let's think about, divin let's think about Christianity, the idea that God came to earth as a human being. God, Jesus is God. God came to earth as a human being. This is the concept of the incarnation. Incarnation means taking a human bodily form. So here's what he says on page 26. By positing Christ as God incarnate, Christianity has proclaimed that man's selfless love for humanity constitutes salvation. So wait a minute. Why did God come to earth? to suffer for humanity out of love of humanity, right? So divinity constitutes love of other human beings. If you can humanize yourself enough to care for other human beings as much as you care for yourself, then you've, you've fulfilled the, the destiny of divinity. Wait a minute, what was it Jesus said? Love, love your fellow man as yourself? Hmm. As God has renounced himself out of love, God gave up his divine, his, his divine prerogative to not, be suffer, to not suffer and not be uh, hurt. God renounced himself, that is his divine power, out of love, so we out of love should renounce God. Okay, you've got to think about that a long time. We should renounce the concept of God as an alien creature. It's not alien, it's us. Page 31, just as man projects himself 
into the outside and therefore posits God. So God, according to theology, projects himself and thereby generates a son. Thus, the one God becomes two persons. Okay, wait a minute. We, we humans created God, but we're really the same, aren't we? Humans and God are the same. And then God, being a gentleman, returns the favor and creates a human being that is himself. So, wait a minute. The Christian concept of God as a human and as God is really very logical. God has become human. There are two dimensions to Jesus. For those of you who are theologians, who have studied theology, God is fully human and fully divine. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. When we get around to talking about Christian teaching, we'll encounter that, uh, that, that official definition of God, of Jesus. The term Son of God is a metaphor. This is God. But he became fully human. So God is fully human and fully divine. Feuerbach says, okay, let's take that, not as a theological statement, but as a statement of humanity. You're fully human, and if you achieve your humanity, you're fully divine. Because what is divinity except human traits projected onto an outside creature? Oh, my goodness. Okay, now we've got to, uh, wait a minute, how long have we been going on here? Uh, let me see here. Uh, okay, we've been going on, oh, 56 minutes. Okay, I wanted to do this in about an hour, so that's good. Um Okay, I got a I got a question for you, and I just wish. Uh, okay, you can talk about this. Uh, I want all of you to go on to chat and say something, say something thoughtful about this. After you've introduced yourself, I've asked each of you to introduce yourselves. I want you also to say something about this uh, about this uh, lecture because uh, it's really provocative, I think. But I'm going to leave you. Uh, okay, this is for the women. You guys can just kind of sit here for a minute and uh, and. Uh, and, and think about this, uh, because women, women have certain things they need to think about uh, when guys are not in the room. Um, so, uh, um, God, God is, you know, God used to be a woman. Do you know that? Back in the original, in the, the original earth goddesses, they were goddesses. When they fertility, they were linked to fertility. They were Sophia, wisdom. And God in the Bible is referred to with, with female gender terms a lot. But somehow, we performed this fantastic sex change operation in which God became a male. Uh, okay, I'll tell you what. You say, no, God doesn't have gender. Okay, let me ask you something. For those of you who are religious, who is it that stands in front of the congregation and explains God's will? Now, in my case, it's a female. So I have a female God, I guess you might say. But there's this term, numistic power, N-U-M-I-S-T-I-C, this numistic power, the ability, the authorization to explain God's intentions. That's traditionally monopolized by males. In the Catholic Church, that is, by law, uh, monopolized by males. Only the priests can, can do this function for you. And, uh, okay, if... If God is a projection of humanity, and if humanity, i.e. God, idealized humanity, i.e. God, is a male, then 
where does this leave women within organized religion? They are traditionally a subjective servant class. They're the ones who prepare the meals and, uh, and the religious leaders always praise them for their service. And uh, yeah, but the religious leaders aren't, uh, the religious leaders aren't women. Uh, the women's auxiliary, the women's group does certain functions. They make religion work, actually, to be honest about this. But you've got to think about this in terms of power. Where are women? 